0: Welcome everyone to the podcast series Talking Film and this episode is called Does Documentary Matter? We have three guests today. Stuart Sloan, the curator of Docs Island, which is an annual festival of documentary film that runs under the rubric of the Belfast Film Festival. Sean Murray is the director of Respect Belfast Human Rights Film Festival and also the director of On Quiet Graves that we'll be discussing. And Siobhan Wills who is the co-director of two recent films on militarised policing and violence in Haiti and Brazil. I am Cahill McLaughlin, director of the Documentary Research Centre at Queen's and director of the Prison's Memory Archive So let's start by asking Stuart. Stuart, do you think documentaries matter? And if so, why?
1: (laughs) Glad you started with one of the easy ones. Um, Yeah, I would say yes, documentaries absolutely matter. Um, I guess there was a number of different uh, reasons I think that. Um, I think we all know that there's a lot of um, fundamental and structural problems uh, with the world. Um, And I think that as a society, we are having real trouble figuring out um, the solutions to those um fundamental and structural problems, and one of the things that I would say um is a solution would be long term kind of education um programs um and I just think the documentary is a very important part of that, especially kind of in a in a world um you know in, a, in an internet related world, a globalized world because people are able to access the information on their own. And I think documentaries um, these days is one of the kind of strongest and kind of broadest ways for individuals to kind of um, educate themselves about the world and about the things that are happening. Um, and then I guess on, a, on another level, I suppose, like, I think empathy, simple human empathy is one of the, um, is one of the ways in which I think that the world could improve. <laughs> Um, And I think like art in general um, is a really, really good way for that to happen. And I think documentaries, I mean, obviously, I'm maybe a bit biased, but for me anyway, on a personal level, I think documentaries are the kind of easiest and best way for me to kind of empathize with humans across the world. Um, So that's kind of why, you know, I I would say they matter because of that, because I'm allowed to empathize with all kinds of people around the world. Um, and, you know, subjective truth is important too. And I think that's obviously like a very um, important kind of part of art. But I also think there's objective truths, um, you know, maybe slightly wider objective truths. And I think documentaries are really good at portraying some of those. Um, Herzog will call that the ecstatic truth. So maybe not one, a truth that's made up of details or details that need to be disputed but kind of wider truths that are kind of self-evident about humanity and society. And I think documentaries are really good at exploring and explaining that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Stuart. And that takes us on to your festival, Docs Island. Um, what was the motivation, in a sense, behind that um, and what are you trying to achieve by Docks Ireland, the annual festival?
1: Um, okay, well, I guess there's there's two kind of main strands that, well, two main strands and a couple of kind of smaller ones. Basically, um, I had been the documentary programmer at the Belfast Film Festival for five or six years, and before that, I was kind of I had a film club that I was just kind of doing film screenings. For my friends and a few stragglers in a local pub in the pavilion on the Omer Road, um, and then a few places across town, um, and basically like as I as I was doing it, um, you know, documentaries on a wider level were becoming more and more popular. Um, so like, our, it was a lot easier easier for us to get an audience, um, and there was a lot more kind of press and media about it, and there's also obviously a lot more films being made. Um, you know, there's many different ways and reasons for that. I would say streaming is part of it. Um, I would say like filmmaking becoming much, much cheaper is part of it. Um, you know, that this digital world that we live in. Um, you know, when documentary started, it you know it only really started in the sixties because you couldn't actually carry cameras. Um, you know, when the Maisles finally got a rig they could carry, that's when, you know, certain types of documentary started. So, yeah, so anyway, they became really popular and um, more and more and more. And then I started doing it for the film festival and our documentaries became more and more popular Um, and we started doing um, a lot more like Irish documentaries as well and they became more and more popular. And both the quality and number of them was increasing massively, like right in front of our eyes. Um, and so we just saw the fact that that was happening In Ireland, especially, but also on a kind of more global scale Um, and then kind of inspired by other kind of um, international documentary festivals. I mean, there's there's hundreds now all over the world and we thought we could do one as well. So we kind of um, from our team within the Belfast Film Festival have split off um, and we are doing a a documentary only festival in June. And we did our first one, which was Irish only in 2018. Um and we sold out every night. Um, the highlight being of course Sean Murray's Unquiet Graves, um, with over four hundred people, and we probably could have sold twice or three times that. Um and that was the kind of start of Sean's kind of journey with that film, which went all over the world, which was just brilliant for us to see, um, and it was brilliant for us to be part of that. Um and so we just after we saw the response to that, we just knew we had to do it every year. Um. So we did our first proper one in two thousand and nineteen. Um, in June two thousand nineteen. Um, and it was just um I think a lot more successful than even we imagined. Um, we actually had a dark market there. Um, which had like influencers and decision makers and distributors and broadcasters from all over the world. Um, and they were all um. Accessing or like talking about Irish films and getting pitched about Irish films and even already a couple of those projects had been funded. Um. So it just went. It was going from strength to strength. Um. And I had already kind of half planned. Twenty nineteen, um, and then COVID struck. So and then we went online and we only did Irish films again, going back to kind of our core um focus, which was Irish films, and we thought that. Since we were going to do way less films and it was going to be online, we should throw all our support behind Irish films and all the Irish films that have been made that year. And, you know, I still thought the program was brilliant because the quality of those Irish films that we showed were, were really, really brilliant. Um, So we're going to be back this year with a kind of hybrid festival. So it's going to be um online in June. Uh, with our kind of industry section, which is like panels and talks and kind of more kind of practical things. Um, And then, fingers crossed, our in-person physical events will be in August. But, uh, you know, we'll see if cinemas still exist at that point.
0: Um, We'll come to Sean's film on Quiet Graves momentarily, but you've raised an interesting issue there about streaming, say, television, and then actually be physically present in a cinema yeah. Do do you think there's a need for people to go to cinemas anymore to watch films?
1: <laughs> yes, I, I absolutely do. Um, I feel like that's the one thing people are missing. And I actually, I think the shared communal experience of any kind of art is one of the more important things about it. Um, and, you know, I just think that's an essential part. I'm not too worried about that. I think the audience will be there and our audience will want to do that, but um, you know, again, like I said, the cinemas are going through a very, very hard time and it's going to be a long time until 400 people can cram together seat by seat in a cinema and feel comfortable. And I think that's the worrying bit. Um, I think the other problem is like homogeneity with streaming services, you know, I think like things like Netflix and Amazon Prime Unfortunately, make a certain type of film and then make a hundred of those. And I am not even sure that sometimes they could even be called documentary. Uh, And I think that's a real problem. Um, Just like in any other kind of industry, I suppose, um, you know, soap manufacturing is not what we want in the film industry. Um, And I'm a bit worried about that
0: okay well, thanks thanks Stuart and sean we'll come to on quiet graves in a moment but you also started a film festival a few years ago on human rights called respect what was your motivation behind that
2: i think it, it, it came off the back of the success of the belfast film festival but we just wanted to center more on uh, social and political issues particularly saying that we, we were uh, centred in West Belfast, an area that was you know, vilified over the conflict. And again, the Belfast F- Film Festival itself grew out of that, that fact, you know. So I just thought that, we were, that, that West Belfast was right for something like that. We, we have a well-structured uh, and well-organized community there. Uh, with, with a lot of international uh, context uh, and, and I it just it, it, it really, you know, from, from there it, uh, it grew from strength to strength, you know.
0: And you mentioned that international aspect, do you have particular criteria you use? What sorts of documentaries are you, or rather the style, I mean Stuart used the term soap production, are you looking for particular types of films or a spread of style?
2: Well, really? Really? There's there's two things that we, that we were looking for when 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 we, we had set out to to you know uh, to advertise for 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 films to be sent in. So I think one was that it challenged uh, you know powerful economic uh, you know power blocks, uh, economic and political power blocks, and also uh, anything that that you know empowered marginalised voices. So really, it was the, it was the key of that something that had something uh, films that had something to say about. Uh, you know the, the social and poli- political uh, issues of their times.
0: And Stuart talked about the the hunger for film, the the reception, the almost surprisingly positive response to seeing films live. What's the response to respect been in your community?
2: Yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's been great. You know, to, to be quite honest, we what, what was really striking with us was the amount of international films that were were were, were processed through the. Uh, through the the, the, the the festival, and how many people internationally came to the festival, that that's what struck me because it always it always known that we we had the that, that community already there that would, would would have that would have embraced that kind of festival within within uh, Belfast and West Belfast in general, you know. So uh, it really struck me about the, the the first of all the quality of the, of the films that were being sent in and and the 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 how far the, the 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 international audience were, worry you know
0: as well as a festival organizer you're also um a director with a very strong reputation now built on many films but particularly on on quiet graves that's a film that has touched a nerve both with local communities because of what it talks about um, overcoming silence but also touched the nerve of what you referred to as those with political interests. Can you tell us a little bit about the background to that film, why you made it?
2: Well, I always wanted to make a, a, a feature documentary that, that gave an overarching story on co- co- collusion. And for me, the Glen Island series of killings was something that, that had always struck me. You know, First of all, the magnitude in regards to how many people was killed, but also those that were involved in the killings. I you know, had members of the, the UDR, which was the, 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 the biggest regiment in the British Army at the time. You had members of the police force who, who by day were, were policemen and by night were, were gunmen and bombers. So, I, I thought the Glen Arn series, although we, we, I think it was, it would be impossible to to list uh, all, all those different incidents that, that may have been involved in collusion, to take one uh, overarching story would have given an indication of, of how widespread collusion was. And the Glen Arn series for me was something that I think the story needed to be told.
0: Interestingly about your film is that, compared to some other films, is it, it's not so much investigative because a lot of that work had been done, but it's about the people, the campaign, the families, the relatives and their work to uncover the truth. Was that a, a choice early on?
2: Yeah, well, for me, I think if we look at that that genre of documentaries and, and, and even I'm describing collusion documentaries as a subgenre in itself, how... If we look even since the Good Friday Agreement, how some of these films were made, they were uh, all, all journalist based documentaries, so they're made by journalists. There wasn't any films that were really made by filmmakers, uh, which, had, which had an artistic tendency to them. So for me, I think the difference with Unquiet Graves was that it was made by you know, a filmmaker, it wasn't made by a journalist. And I think stylistically, uh, it, it, we can see that in Unquiet Graves. Uh, the collaboration, the many different people I brought together, who, who were also artists, and making the film, I think the the investigative work had already been done, but it, it all had already been done over the years. It was how I shaped that and how I told the story, and really how I paced that to give it the integrity, to give the integrity of the family stories.
0: It's had a huge response. Did that surprise you? I mean, a big response, not only locally but also internationally.
2: Uh, yes. It, it did surprise me. I think, I think the biggest surprise was, was during the RTE screening. We had always, you know, at the same time we didn't set out for any broadcasters to come involved in the film because I didn't want any uh, editorial control for, through any broadcasters. So when the RTE screening had had uh, had taken place, it really did surprise me that the vitriol that came out of uh, of some of the, you know. Uh, some of those that were trying to def- defame me personally, but also the calibre of those that were trying to defame me personally. I mean, Charlie Flanagan becoming involved, uh, a, a former government minister. And a lot of, a lot of journalists who had really been quiet uh, in the, the opening of the film at Galway Film Festival and at Dax Ireland, etc. I think they were happy to let Unquiet Graves pace itself out and they were hoping that the film would stay under the radar. But I think that they lost that kind of discipline once RT had decided to, to screen the film, you know.
0: Um, and you mentioned uh, the ex-minister, Charlie Flanagan. Has the pub, sometimes um, even bad publicity is good publicity. <laughs> how would you say the film, how have the relatives felt that the film has had an impact? Have you been in touch with them?
2: I have yes, I've been in touch with a number. I, I stay very, I'm very close friends with a lot of the family members through through the making of the film, and I think the general consensus among family me- family members is that uh, you know they they measure the success of the film on the caliber of the people that's annoyed. Really, okay. You know they they they, they say that you know, the film had set out plus more to do what it it wanted to do, and that they were very, very happy with that, you know.
0: Good. Thanks, Sean. We'll come back to both of you in a moment. Um, Siobhan Wills. Siobhan, you've directed a couple of films recently, um, but you're new to filmmaking. What attracted you to documentary filmmaking?
3: Well, the two films that I've worked on, which I worked on with you, just to be clear, um, are about... um, military and uh, police violence in marginalized communities in Haiti and Brazil and the standard social science research processes um, would normally involve uh, interviewing people or writing reports and probably publishing it in journal articles and maybe a textbook or a a monograph and those uh, outputs are really hardly relevant at all, totally irrelevant to the participants, the people you are writing about that live in the marginalized communities because they're very unlikely to read them, especially if they're in a foreign language. And so you're doing research that is d- sort of on behalf of, but disconnected from the people that you're researching about. And I think it, in this kind of situation, it would be better to research with the community rather than about them and certainly that whatever you produce should be something that is accessible to the community and not something that they can't access at all and I think film offers that possibility of course there are ways different ways of making films so it is possible to just zoom in and make a film and never go back again but it is possible to um, make a film in collaboration with the community discuss with them why you're making the film, what they would like out of it, and uh, to try and work with them to produce a film that uh, tells their stories in the way that they want them to be told and, uh, and gives them the opportunity to to make sure that they're happy with the film at the end of it and say that they want to withdraw if they want to withdraw. And that kind of process, I think, gives uh, the participants um, a greater... The interest in wanting to participate in research that you have, that is accessible to you, that you can share with your friends, that you have some degree of control over. And I think that freedom and that it is your research as well as it's collaborative research, it's not uh, uh, the expert from somewhere else's research. Um, I think that opens up the possibility of more nuanced uh uh, findings coming out that people talk in a different way if it's something that they're part of, um, that is their research as well as um, the me and the director and the and the rest of the team. So that is one reason. The other reason is um, in communicating the research. Who reads uh, journal articles and and monographs? Nowadays, most people only read them in order to get the footnotes to uh, use them in their own journal articles. And so um, film is a visceral way of communicating, and I think uh, Sean mentioned it, or it's not Sean Stewart, or Sean may have mentioned it, but Stewart mentioned it, about that um, it creates an ability to see human qualities, empathy, and that um, through people who tell their stories themselves in the way they want to, uh, or edited, of course, because... I haven't got all day um, they um, um, people can see and 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 at least uh, understand empathize they may not agree with what is what the other person is saying in the film but they can empathize in a In a way that is much more difficult in a textbook. Uh, It's also easier to absorb. You're there for maybe an hour or an hour and 15 minutes instead of wading through a journal article with loads of cups of coffee. So I think it's a way of uh, sharing uh, the research, collaborating the research process with the people who who you're researching with and it's also a a, a more visceral uh, way of communicating that research.
0: Thank you. Um, You went to two communities that experienced uh, extreme deprivation and violence. Your background is law. You used to go to libraries. Um, What were the challenges in going to those out into communities um, in Haiti and in the favelas of Rio? What would you say were the challenges that you
3: faced? There are numerous, so i won 't go into all of them. The obvious ones are language, um, uh, roads, terrible roads, transport, um, extreme differences in uh, lifestyle. Um, Haiti is one of the poorest countries in the world, so you 're working in a in a community where people are hungry, um, where there is no uh, drinkable water, so you have to be careful not to you know people offer you water but you know that this is extremely precious you can't be seen be accepting their water even if it's 40 degrees and baking outside um so those kind of practical things i think uh one of the things that struck me is um there's a shock in Haiti um, uh, the challenges were slightly different in Brazil but there's a shock in Haiti from the extreme extremity of the poverty and um I think uh, in producing the film we wanted to to avoid bringing that shock for example rivers just three feet deep in plastic, pigs wandering around a kind of thing that is alienating and if you're producing a film that you want people to empathize with it's not helpful to produce images that are alienating so we tried to focus on images that are universal, that are shared. So children in school, rather than the, um, that to to us coming from Northern Ireland are, are quite shocking scenes. So uh, that is one, one challenge that um, in Haiti, the t- challenges in Brazil uh, were different in Haiti. We were f- talking about there, there is violence in Haiti. There's extreme violence right now. And there was uh, extreme violence in 2005, but in the period we were there in 2017, 18, There was violence, but it was uh, moderate kind of violence. Um, So it was possible to go around and and not be interfered with too much. You had to be careful. Uh, There were gangs, but it it was nothing truly uh, out of order. Um, But in Brazil, the violence was escalating when we were there. In 2019, we were in Rio de Janeiro and police were killing uh, and still are, killing people, six people a day. So the violence was extreme. They were using heavily militarized uh, um, mechanisms, tanks, well, not tanks, armored vehicles, but from the participants' point of view, they looked like tanks, armored vehicles, helicopters, uh, firing from uh, helicopters into uh, urban areas, where residential areas where people are living. Three times we had to turn back um, because of a sudden military operation in the community where we were where we were on the way to meet people. They sent us a WhatsApp message saying, don't come now, there's an operation on. And those operations last... I had imagined that operations would last a few hours. They last five days. And um, the distress to the community and, and just... I mean, people were killed in these operations. Whilst we were there, we were there about just over eight weeks, and there were three people killed that we were aware of, But more people were being killed, but three people killed in contexts where we knew about. Um, so that level of immediacy of the violence was, um, I think, one of the biggest challenges.
0: And can I ask you about, um, Sean's also talked about this, the the people in your film, the participants, um, do you know what they thought about, how they responded? Were they part of the screening process?
3: Yes, um, they. we have been committed to involving them throughout the whole um, the whole process of making the film um, and also in uh, the dissemination of the film. So in Haiti, uh, the film premiered in Foucault, uh, which is... Um, Soros Foundation Art Center uh, all the participants came to the screening and they were um, there was a, one of their representatives was on the uh, Q&A panel and there was all of them were open to discussions from the floor and we also had a similar w- with participants on the panel in the screening at the State University of Haiti the screenings of the Rio film have all been online because of lockdown of course um, but we have uh, the prep the film premiered by webinar and we've had a couple of other webinars since with um, participants participating in the in the webinar and the Q&A.
0: Thank you Siobhan. Um, I'll just say a couple of little things about the Prisoners Memory Archive because it kind of reverberates with some of the things that you've all talked about and use of the word empathy that Stuart mentioned and participation that Siobhan was saying and um, Sean was talking about that idea of touching on quite difficult, challenging issues that have been silenced for decades. The The role of the Prison's Memory Archive is to record people's memories about the conflict, in this case the prisons that operated during the Troubles, thats no, the conflict is known as sometimes. And that idea of to do it as inclusively and as a bigger range as possible. I worked with Siobhan on the two films in IT and Rio and they were very clearly about the participants who were violated. In this case we were actually questioning and challenging the, the simplistic dichotomy of victim and perpetrator because as someone from the Shank Stress community group once said, the same person can be a victim and a perpetrator and then a victim again depending on their experiences of the the conflict and so our idea was to have as wide a range as inclusive a range as possible and so we had prison officers as well as prisoners teachers as well as visitors and showing that film in public and I think that's one of the most interesting aspects we thought most of the work would have been done beforehand but actually getting your film out there getting it seen and seeing the responses to it can be equally challenging that film has been very well received. We've made films from, sorry, we've edited films from the archive and one particular film about Armagh Jail, the women's prison, created wonderful safe space in one cross-community women's group that allowed them to start to talk about their own experiences. In fact, they didn't talk about the film at all, but the space that was created allowed them to talk about their own experiences across what's called the peace line. And so they talked about education, uh, violence, imprisonment, and etc. But we showed it in another situation, which was ex-service people, prison officers, UDR, that Sean's referred to, the British Army Regiment, the RUC, the name of the old police force. And the response was um, really strong, very critical. And that was because those people... It's the other side of the coin of pain is anger. And those people in that community felt that they had been bypassed, that the progress that we have seen in terms of the end of conflict um, and the political settlement has meant that we've moved on. But as they put it, the people that they put in prison to keep society safe are now in government. And so as society moves on, those people felt that they had been bypassed. And I think when we're talking about showing films, Often we can get, and Sean's experienced this, very, very critical responses. And I think it's about how you engage with that, manage that, negotiate, is one of the most important things that we certainly face, and any transitional society faces. Okay, what I'd like to know is, do you think, is there a future in documentary film? Is there such a kind of landscape of so many films out there that finding space for films has become increasingly difficult maybe stuart would you like to start
1: yeah yeah i mean it's a very very important and relevant question and i think um you know the COVID world has kind of accelerated maybe the problems of this um in a kind of good metaphor of how the rest of the world is going the kind of richer getting richer Um i would say that like you know there's a chance that festivals um, are in a stronger position because The kind of weirder and more experimental and, in my uh, opinion, more interesting end of documentary and and that might include the kind of films that deal with um, kind of civil rights around the world and things like that, more like the more journalistic films. There's more space for them at festivals because the kind of commercial end is now being swallowed whole um by the streamers um and i think that's a good thing for us i don't know if it's necessarily a good thing in general um like i mentioned before um but it's it is it's very tricky at the moment i mean a lot of the films that i would have normally been able to get this year's festival are on tv um and a lot more tv's shows and streamers and broadcasters are buying documentaries i don't think for very much money um and i think ultimately that is also still a good thing because a lot of these films are good or at least you know some of them are good um and so i think that's a good thing in general and i think like a lot more people are watching documentaries and i think that's definitely really really good um but yeah it's it's it's, it's tricky i don't know i mean i still have a hunger for it i don't know but what do you think al or siobhan what do you think about that
0: Well, we've had our own experience with exhibition. Maybe you'd like to talk about I mean, some of the more obvious human rights festivals haven't touched us, but we have been shown by a lot of much smaller but very kind of targeted uh, festivals like black film festivals, women's film festivals, etc. How have you felt that the film has been received?
3: Ah, well, (laughs) it received by whom is um, the... um, I think festivals is difficult. Um, we've, we've got lots of small festivals online. Um, of course everything's online at the moment. Um, breaking into uh, human rights festivals or the festivals that might really... Um, the bigger festivals that might really um, enable uh, a real shift in, in the narrative is quite difficult and I I don't really know why because I think people think the films are good, but I think um, it's possibly, um, part of it is um, being known within the field. Um, But aside from the film, uh, there are other avenues for for screening documentaries than film festivals. And I think um, that uh, the first one before the lockdown, um, The film we made on Haiti has been screened widely um, in universities and uh, museums and other groups um, in many, many countries. And I think the response to it was, I think the value of a live screening is that um, there is this kind of shared experience and people can uh, communicate and talk about that what is happening and that those opportunities are not necessarily confined to festivals. Um, lockdown is a bit difficult because uh, yes the film has been screened but I don't really know how it's been received because you don't really get very much information back. So,
0: Thank, thank you and I mean importantly that uh, It's Days With You was shown at the United Nations Human Rights Council side event in Geneva and that was you know, that made up for a lot of not getting to festivals. Um, but the other thing, Sean I was wondering about in terms of the future, because there are a lot more f- films out there and available to watch. What about the funding of films? I meant to ask that earlier. How do you fund such independent, challenging uh, films?
2: I can only speak for On Quiet Graves uh, and of course, more than in pre-production with the follow-up to Unquiet Graves. Uh, any funding that we got, besides, I think we got uh, uh, some minor money from uh, from NI Screen towards the end of, of Unquiet Graves. Uh, any money that we've got has come from the family members and supporters themselves. So that, that we, we, we raise the money ourselves, which is quite, quite a different format from, from, from many filmmakers in that sense. So I think it's just that we've had the, the, the public support behind us. I think that that on graves has really struck a chord, uh, and and it's it's been far easier for me second time around to raise money for the follow up film. Uh, but I think when you're when you're dealing with 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 subjects that are so politically sensitive, it's very very difficult to get institutional funding. And I, th- and I wrote about this in my own research, in my PhD. I think after the the, the, the the release of 66 days at a meeting with, with, within ni screen. And, and, and it quickly became, I quickly, I, quick, I quickly became aware that, 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 that there, there were issues there with, 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 funding and that I think the, the, the DUP backlash to, to the, to the, uh, release of 66 days had caused some concern, uh, in, in, in some circles. So I think it worked out better for me because with that, 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 when you stray for that kind of independent funding and, 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 and where, where that money comes from in regards to family members and supporters you have that that freedom to make the film that you want that I think that's the difference and if you are able to do that I would always suggest that, that you do do it D- distribution is a completely different thing altogether but I mm-hmm. think if you if you're if you're willing to take that risk and you 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 have a film that becomes a, a critical and commercial success through that Obviously, second time around, it becomes easier and, and, and dis- distributors, et cetera, uh, they're willing to take a risk then on, on our, not that they're willing to take a risk. They see that that uh, your team are able
1: to make a film of, of, of that kind of quality. You know, Sean, do you mind talking about your new film? I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, well, so the, the, the follow
2: up to Unquiet Quiet really centers on uh, the Mid-Ulster area. So East Tyrone. And how the, the how we move first of all from the central character in, in Unquack as being the jackal, who was the the leader of the Glenon gang, and how his kind of killing spree moved to uh, King Rat, who was Billy Wright. Mm-hmm. and both both those uh, bo- both them operated together and both were, were were state agents. So you have that in, in terms of characterisation. But but what you do what we are trying to impress to the audience is the change in strategy by, by the British establishment in the sense that what the Arm gang were doing was targeting SDLP members, GA members, and those innocent victims that were doing well within their communities. Uh, so the strategy changed then was, was, was that it was more uh, targeting of, of Republican ex-prisoners, etc. So we had, and even uh, IRA volunteers for that matter, so you had uh, extrajudicial killings, uh, by the SAS and what went went hand-in-hand hand with that was uh, Billy Rage squad were killing uh, innocent innocent family members Republican family members In effect, So you had the death of Kathleen O'Hagan who was seven months pregnant shot dead in front of her four kids you had old couples uh, like uh, the foxes who were killed in their homes so they were they were very very uh, well were, they were targeted killings first of all but what the, the what was behind that was to to try and press any support for the ira that were, were, were in those communities was to terrorize the communities in effect from withdrawing any, any kind of, of support but in many ways if you think that the killings in unquiet graves were horrific in, in their targeting in, in many ways it became much worse once we move into that, that that phase and it was made much worse obviously by the and we're looking at that in detail also by the the guns that came from south africa of mi5 and there's a, a real interesting story in that in itself you know cool and do you have any kind of timeline we're hoping to start filming in in the summer and releasing by the start of of, of next year you know so there's a kind of denouement that so it, beats, it 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 builds up to the peace process i think it's something that we can we can now put a close on once this this film's finished but if we look at both films i think it gives a real overarching story of the conflict from from a different perspective from a perspective of the victims who were. Who were marginalised, probably probably more than anyone during the conflict, because I mean, if we're dealing with the stories of republican families, we we, we, we were never ever afforded that. Uh, it was something that if we're talking about many marginalised voices, I think they were they were at the, at the top of that pile, you know. So it's it's a different, it'll be a very very different, very different film. But I think what's what's will be more interesting is that we have it's from the makers of Unquiet grades and No Stone Unturned. So Trevor Burney's producing it, and I'm directing it, you know.
0: And is that making any difference because you're now working with a professional production company that, is, uh, that broadcasts in many ways its own stuff? Will there be a change, do you think? Because you mentioned earlier that idea of being independent and raising your own money and being in control. And my experience, certainly, is that when I worked in television, there was a kind of very particular way that you made films. In fact, at one point, a commissioning editor asked us for the script, of what people would say in the future and it was so controlling. Siobhan's experience and mine with research funding is that you get a much greater degree of independence. Do you find in working with the detail that there's a respect there for your editorial decisions?
2: Well I think obviously with the backlights of No Stone Unturned and On Quack Graves what we what, what witnessed with what On Quack Graves was they couldn't unpick the truth that was in the film, so they had to go for the man. They went for me. They tried to defame me, and I was lucky. I'd taken a case against a, a number of people uh, that, that I was that I was successful on. So they couldn't unpick the, the, what had happened within the film, the truths that, that were within the film, uh, and you know we'd seen a high level of vilification against me in, in some uh, parts of the media and from some from some government ministers also, which was very very surprising. But I think this time, because I think what, what Trevor brings to, to the table now is, is, is obviously Trevor's a, 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 a award leading producer in, in my eyes. His international contacts is something that I think can elevate this film even further than Unquiet Graves. But also what, what we've already sp- uh, spoke on is that we have a third party that will go over all those all those documents and any and evidence we're bringing the, to the table. So it's completely transparent the whole way through. And if, there's, if there are any broadcasters that come on board uh, towards the end of the film, that they know that that, that, that process is, is in place.
0: Well, I think we're coming towards the end, and I think the probably conclusion to this podcast is that documentary does matter, <laughs> um, but it matters in many, many different ways. So I'd like to thank Siobhan and Stuart and Sean and call them for the opportunity of making this broadcast. Thank you.